Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. I feel like the one thing you have to do when you write a novel for a reader, it has to be something that the reader can hook onto. Something that makes the reader feel like that little part of that short of them is in that character. When I'm reading every one of your characters, I'm going to figure out pretty early on what basic thing motivates them. The plot is really there for the publishers and the audience to say, oh, okay, it's a thriller inside the White House. But what really makes it good is not that it's a thriller inside the White House. That's the answer. The answer is never the plot. What my best books have in common, and it took me a while to even figure it out myself, is it's not the White House, it's not the millionaires, it's not the big bank. It's that you care about that character. The number one question I ask myself with every character is what does this character want? What do they want? And if I can't answer that question, I shouldn't be writing the character. I got to go back. If you just make the character, oh, he just wants to save the girl. Like, why? No, no, that's a plot. What does he want as a person? And if you answer that question correctly, then you will get motivation. So I've got best-selling writer, thriller writer, Brad Meltzer with me. Brad, how's it going? It's great to be here. The The book, The Escape Artist, comes out today. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But first off, uh, I just there's like several things about you that I want to talk about. One is, like so many people who have come on this podcast, you studied law and then never and did it as far aside, as I know. Right? And it, that's happened so many times. Oh, wasn't there, who was it, who were we speaking to last week? Can anyone out there, who were we speaking to last week who went to law school? Oh, Paul Mercurio was at a law firm. Peter Thiel went to law school. Robert Kirsten went to law school. It's got so many people on this podcast. Go to law school and then never do anything relating to the law and uh, do the things they love in life. Yeah, I went to law school out of fear. I just didn't want my dad's life. My, my family struggled with money when I was growing up in Brooklyn, mm. and I did not want that life. I needed something to fall back on. And if it all went to pot and every dream I had was not going to work, I wanted something that would actually pay me because I was determined not to struggle like my dad did. And uh, you, were, you were trying to write while in law school. Your first novel um, was rejected everywhere. 24 rejection letters. There were only 20 publishers. I got 24 rejection letters. Okay, so now you have to tell me how did you get four more than there were? I mean, I think some people were writing me twice to make sure I got the point, right? <laughs> I mean, but I do. I got 24 letters. And when I counted up today, I was like, there's only 20 publishers. Like, where did I get them all? Um, 
But yeah, it was a, my first book was a disaster. No yeah. one bought it. And then, you know, I, I want to get into all your stuff because you've done, um, I didn't know this actually until I was preparing for you, but you did uh, a lot of comic books. Uh, you did Jack and Bobby, which I watched, the TV series. Um, uh, I when you When Steve, the podcast producer, first mentioned your name, I knew you from... 2002, 2003, I read your book, The Millionaires. That was the first of your books of, of several that I've that I've read. And then, of yeah. course, now I've read your your latest, uh, The Escape Artist. But um, how did you have the fortitude? So you just, how long did it take you to write that first novel that got rejected first, everywhere? First novel I went to was on a job I went to work out. A guy said, I'll be your mentor. I'll take you under my wing. Um, come, don't go to law school, he said to me. I was right out of college. I had debt to pay off at University of Michigan. And he said, don't go to law school. Come stay with me, and I'll and I'll. If you love it, you stay. And if you hate it, after a year, you leave with some money in your pocket. That seemed like a good deal, what right? Was the job? And the job was to work at Games Magazine, the puzzle and gaming magazine, um, to play puzzles and games for a living. I was going to be his marketing manager, and I thought that's a great deal. I'll take, I used you know, to love that magazine. Of course you did, because you have a genius intellect. Anyone who subscribed was to that, that magazine had a genius intellect. But is that magazine still around? Like, it is still around. It is the Mensa crowd. And if you if you ever subscribed to games when you were little, it was because you were just a really friggin' bright kid. And I loved that. Um, and so I wound up working for Games Magazine. It was my first job. But the week, you know, I moved all my stuff to Boston, moved everything to Boston. The week I got to Boston, my boss left the job. Mm. And I thought, oh, crap, I've wrecked my life. But did he try to comfort you or say and so, sorry? You know, he sweetheart of a guy, Eli Siegel, I own forever. He actually made opportunity after opportunity for me later because I think he always felt bad about that. But I thought I wrecked my life. So I did what all of us do in situations where we think we wrecked our lives. I said, I'm going to write a novel. <laughs> and I didn't know what I was doing. I just was like, I'm going to write, everyone has one story in them. I'm, I'm going to take my shot. And I wrote my first novel. As I said, I got 24 rejection letters. No kidding. And what was it? You know what? I obviously don't know what it, what was that one about. It was just a character. It was I went to University of Michigan, like your producer Steve, and um, and I just wrote about two kids in Michigan. That's all. I just I just liked the characters interacting. But what I, I I felt like I wanted to do is I just wrote what I knew, and every day I just started to fall in love with talking to these imaginary people as opposed to what I was doing on my job. And I just said, you know what? I really you know everyone always tells you find what you love to do and find someone to pay you to do it. I didn't know what I loved. But in talking to these imaginary people and writing this story, I found it. Do you think that's something that is a device that could be used? Like write a character and talk to it? Yeah, I mean, no, for me, that's how, it, that's how I do it. I see it. I mean, I, every novel that you read, I see, I've seen the entire movie. It's in my head. I know exactly what everyone looks like. I know what every scene looks like. I can tell you everything about it. I mean, but you know, my life was changed by my, I had a ninth grade English teacher named Sheila Spicer who changed my life with three words. She said, you can write. Yeah, and you mentioned her in your your great TED talk, which I also want to talk about um, how to write your own obituary. Yeah, of course. Um, and uh, and you mentioned her in the in the and she probably doesn't even know or when you yeah, the no, idea she had is no that you idea. might not even know your legacy. Yeah, well, listen, this woman changed my life. Told me I could write. She said to me, "I'm going to put you in the honors class." She tried to get me in there. I had a conflict. She said, "Here's what I'm going to do." She said, "I'm going to sit in the you're going to sit in the corner for the entire year. Ignore everything I do on the blackboard. You're going to do the honors work instead." And what she was really saying was, you're going to thank me later. And 10 years later, when my first book came out, I went back to her classroom. I knocked on the door. I said, my name is Brad Meltzer. I wrote this book and it's for you. And she starts crying. I'm like, why are you crying? She said, you know, I was going to retire this year because I didn't think I was having an impact anymore. And I'm like, are you kidding? You have 30 students. We have one teacher. And sometimes you don't even realize your impact on other people. This woman changed my life, had no idea of her impact on my life. And how many other students' lives do you think? The funny thing was, is uh, years later, 
She actually lasted 12 years after I went back and said thank you to her, which is why I always say to people, you know, you you have someone I'm sure who took your first chance, you gave you your first chance. There's someone, everyone listening now has someone who took a chance in them, told them they were good at something for the first time. Everyone has somebody in their life like that. And when you're done listening here, uh, go thank them. You won't believe what comes from it. Just go say thank you. Because mm. I went back to her. She lasted 12 more years after my thank you, still teaching. And when she finally retired, um, we we honored her at the school board with, a, you know, they had this big teacher of the year thing. And I got to pick a teacher of the year and we honored her. And I posted, look Miss Spicer and here she is. And the amazing part was, is how many people on my Facebook page, when I had her, she was my favorite teacher. I had her, she changed my life. I had her, how do I find her? And it was all these kids. Mm. They all were there. And I, and I said, for every teacher out there, some of them won't ever find you. They'll never be nice enough to find you, but you have them. And we all have those people in our life that, you know, the people who you saw as the giants in your life, you're now the giants to them, right? When you say, good job, or I like what you did there, or you have a real knack for that, that's your power. And if you don't use that power, time fades and your power fades with it. So use the power, go say thank you. It's so funny because I don't know of any, I don't know. You have nobody I, in your life like who, that? No one who gave me my first, I think I kind of. Um, and maybe not give you your first real job, but no one that said, you're, you know what, you're good at this, James, you have a knack for this. Nobody? No one that gave you your first, who hired I, you? I for, what was really your first think, job? Uh, my first, I was a, I went to grad school and undergrad for computer science. And so my first job was related to computers, which I wasn't really that. Right to, into at the time, you know, it was it would be the equivalent as if you had been a lawyer somewhere. Sure. So I kind of had to really fight for. And listen, I mean, I I right, you didn't right. fight. Of course, uh, twenty-four of course. rejection letters. You 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 fought. Uh, but I can't think of who inspired inspired me in the directions that were successful for me. Who was your first guest? Um, well, you know, the podcast was sort of a natural outgrowth of writing. I'd written a, a bunch of books. Um, and it was just my friends who were writers who were who were guests. Who came to do it, yeah. yeah. I mean, but to me, it's like those people that took a shot, right? There's somebody, like people come on you now because they're like, oh, wait, how many downloads does it get? Good, I'll do it. Yeah. Right? But there's somebody out there who just said, I don't give a crap what you get, I'm your pal. That's an That person did an amazing favor for you that day. No, it's right. just a there's question of like, who a took a shot? Like, like someone who sat here for an hour and said, I don't really care if it's good or bad. You know, yeah. I have friends who read that first book. That book was not, you know, it wasn't great. Um, I thought it was great. They thought it was great, but they read it. They took, you know, for a book that was never published and they still are my readers today. I still use them 20 years later. Well, your story with that book reminds me of the story of Mario Puzo who wrote uh, The Godfather, uh, which is a great novel, by the way. It's one of the few uh, novels slash movies where both, it's hard to say what's better. The novel is great and the movie is great. They're both beautiful works of art. But he wrote two very literary novels first, which got no acclaim. And he was like, Screw it! I'm gonna write something that makes a lot of money. So he wrote The Godfather. You got all these rejection letters, and then you just say it. It sounds like you said a little bit. You know what? I'm gonna write a thriller. Uh, I'm gonna learn the art form of the thriller, which is different than writing a no, book about dude, two guys. No, the funny thing was, is that I, I wish I were that smart. I was just 20 years old. I was 24 years old when I wrote my first book. And the week I got, I was young and stubborn. And the week I got my 23rd and 24th rejection letter, I said, if they don't like that book, I'm gonna write another. And if they don't like that book, I'm going to write another. What, what, what do you think um, not only gave you persistence but or resilience? Because resilience is one thing, but you kind of have to resilience plus I'm going to also get better. Like, yep, that's you, right. you wanted to do something a little Listen, different I th- and enough I do that think, you get I think published. You, I think, you know what? When you have nothing, you fight harder than anybody. Hmm. And my family had nothing. My family fought. I mean, we were, when my dad was 39 years old, 
I lived in Brooklyn, New York, and maybe just start back a little more, and grew up in Brooklyn, and Brooklyn kicked my family's ass. It just did. It was a, just a mess, and my dad at 39 years old lost his job, and he had two kids. He said, it's the do-over of life. I'm going to start over from scratch, and we had he had $1,200 to his name. He was never good at saving money. That was all he had. He had a car, and it was him and my mom in the front seat, my sister and I in the back seat, and we drove down from New York to Florida, and he just said, we're going to start over from nothing. And I remember we didn't even have enough money for a down payment or a security deposit for a rental. So we lived with my grandparents in a one-bedroom apartment, six of us in a one-bedroom for months because they couldn't even they couldn't save the security deposit even when they were getting jobs. And my parents used to, you know, when you go into Arby's and there's someone who says like, hey, can you fill out the survey? And everyone walks right past them and just is like, we don't, who the hell wants to fill out a dumb survey for one minute? Those are my parents. Mm. That was the job that they had first down there. And it was crushing. And I used to go to the job because there was no money for a babysitter. And I remember my dad's first job interview, it was in a Wendy's um, for an insurance company. And he took me to every job interview because again, there was no one to watch us. And I remember sitting on, we used to have to pretend not to know him. And I would sit on the opposite side of a Wendy's watching him be interviewed and going, my God, my life is being decided on the opposite side of a fast food restaurant. How old, how old were you again? I was 13. And so you would be thinking that. Oh yeah, I remember the thought. I remember as I was picking out the French fries, I was like, my life is being decided in a fast food restaurant if this guy gets this job or hires my father. I remember watching the entire scene. Would you be able to see from across the room whether your dad was going to get the job or not, based on the, how they were, what their stances were, what the confidence was. Yeah, I mean, was. now Did I could, of course. Like body language, right? But and- I think I, I a hundred percent believe that you develop your skills by needs, mm-hmm. right? Every book is a need. Everything you do is a need. You think it's a, it's your, it's your, you know. And some things we stumble to, and some things we luck into, of course. But the big things are the things we need and fight for. And I actually think that my ability to tell a story and to observe comes from those needs at that point in time. My, my, my dad was a ball of chaos. Like he, he fought with everyone, he argued with everyone. And I know that my job, even though I'm a writer, my job every day as a thriller writer um, is I tell everybody exactly what to do. Every character, every scene, every building, every door, the weather, I control it all. I am the lowercase g god of this domain. And I know, even though I love writing and I love the creativity, there's a part of me that 20 years now doing this realizes it's a need of my own control to kind of offset the chaos that my dad was on a daily basis coming in and just wrecking crap. Wow, do you think it's that connected? I do, I do. I'm not some Freudian who like feels like everything your dad does screws you up for life. I don't think that. My dad loved me like nobody's business. I mean, loved me. But I remember, you know, again, my dad once was so angry flipping over a pool table you know, he was just that guy who fought with people, like physically. Was he ever like uh, abusive in the no, family? No, no, no. He was, he, my dad was beat up by his dad. Mm-hmm. My dad was, my-, my Sometimes that's hereditary. Of course. And and the thing, you know, my father, I'll say this, my father was struck by lightning mm-hmm. and his father was struck by lightning. Two lightning bolts. They should have done exactly the same thing. And my grandfather used to beat up my father and he was a boxer in the military and he used to hit him, you know, I'm, I'm sure he hit him in a, you know, you don't want to be beat up by a, a dad boxer. Mm-hmm. My father should have beat the crap out of me. By every measure of any you know scientific look at anything, statistically, he should have done exactly what his dad did to him, right? That's what abuse happens, right? It just goes down generation after generation. But my father it broke the lightning curse. 
right? He should have just been, another, I should have been another lightning bolt. And my dad would never lay a hand on me. I remember, in fact, in our apartment in Brooklyn, he used to get so angry. He used to always, when he would be mad, he would punch holes in the walls and the doors. I'm all around our house, every door, every bathroom door, his bedroom door, they all had a little hole right in the front where he used to punch it as hard as he could. It would be a hole except for our door. Mm. My sister and my door, we shared a bedroom for those 13 years. Never had a, nothing touched it. My dad loved us like nobody's business. And that was our strength. And I'm his legacy, right? Everything I am today, my sense of humor, my confidence all comes from my mom and dad loving me. But I know that watching the chaos that he caused in his own life absolutely made me feel the need of like, I don't want that. I, it, it, it makes me sad, like just relating to your dad a little bit. Like when you go through that kind of financial stress in his, I guess his forties, and you really want to protect your kids. Oh, from, there's nothing where I, and I watched my father when I went, to, you know, I was the first of my family to go to a four-year college. And my dad, when I got into Michigan, it was I play up to one place because it was too expensive to apply to all these places. I had like 50 bucks. I was like one place. That's why I'm putting my, my betting on black. Here we go. And my father should have said to me, you're going to Florida. You live in Florida. You're going to the state school and we don't have the money. And my father looked at that friggin' $100,000 bill that was coming his way and said, I'll get you there. And he had no friggin' idea how to do it. He started saving for college the year before I went to college. And he was an insurance salesman. He had no, you know, he wasn't making like crazy money. But my dad, you know, in my senior year, he eventually ran out of money. What I didn't know is, and this is again, just my father is, he was opening up credit cards in my name. Um, every offer that would come that says like new credit card for you, he would just take a new one out and just open up a whole nother line of credit to keep paying my bills. Mm -hmm. Even though they were like 25% interest rates because he did not understand that if he took out a loan, that would be up 5%, that that would be way better. He felt like that would be, he just made bad decisions. He bad with money, bad with finance. And so he thought he was doing the right thing, but again, it just caused so much chaos because now he had this like crushing debt at 25% that I had to come out and then renegotiate down and figure out and, you know, work out. Um, and I had to, I had to, again, I had to get the control. I had this ball of chaos and I had to, again, make control of it and fix it. So I, I want to get to the control part in the, in the writing process, but for, first, and just the, the sheer biography of you, I mean, you've written um, every single you book you've written has been a, a New York Times bestseller. Let's talk about that very first one after all these rejections. You you somehow decided, okay, I'm going to not only persevere, but I'm going to get better. Like, what did you think you had done wrong? What did you change? And then this book, not, your, your very next book that you wrote, you're still in law school. Not only did it get published, but it became a New York Times bestseller and you've never looked back. Yeah, no. Um, I wish I could say, oh my gosh, I'm going to switch. I wish I was Mario Puzo who was smart enough to say, I'm going to just write commercial fiction and screw it. I'm going to make a paycheck. I didn't know. I just was young. We, when we're young, there's no plan, right? You just run. But but the tenth justice though is not like a literary novel. It's not like yeah, two, no, but it was two a popular, friends right, talking from Michigan. Right, and but you know, you know what happened? Um, so I'll tell you how I learned how to swim. Again, my parents should have taught me how to swim, but I didn't know how to swim. And I saw that Joey Tusa's brother at camp, who was three years younger than us or two years younger than us, suddenly swimming in the deep end, and I couldn't swim in the deep end. I was like, that little brother swimming in the deep end? That's bullshit. I'm, and so I literally walked over to the edge of the pool, walked to the deep end, and jumped in right off the diving board. And I should have never done that. That's so stupid, right? Who just jumps in the deep end of the pool to see if they can swim? But that's how I learned to swim because that was how my brain worked then. And that's how it was for writing. I didn't have a plan. I just had started law school. And because I was in law school, I remember I was sitting in law school 
I was in the back row of the classroom and, and they, I remember writing down the word Supreme Court and the word clerk. And I circled it and I wrote book idea on the top of it because I heard that these Supreme Court clerks who work with the justices are 26 years old and they help decide and write up the cases when the Supreme Court decides a case. And I remember it as a 26-year-old kid thinking that's the most badass job in the world. Because- All that power. Because there's a lot of power. It's, a, it's got that youth, youthful impulsiveness and bad things can happen. So it almost becomes a, uh, an exercise. It was a fantasy, right? How many bad things can happen? Right. And, and But for a kid in law school to be told that the Supreme Court of the United States, the thing they hold bigger than anything, is actually being written and decisions are being, obviously not decided, but written by someone who's three years older than I am as a fresh, as a first year law student, that was the greatest fantasy of all time. So I just, it wasn't that I had a plan. I just thought that's the coolest story I ever heard. And so I just came and just, it's not that, you know, when I wrote about Michigan, because that was my life. I worked in Washington, D.C. that summer. I went to the Supreme Court and did some research and I was a law student, so that was my life. I just have been writing about my life. My second book was about a married couple because I got married. The new book is about Dover because I went there. I just always write about whatever stage of life I am. Well, I, I we were talking right before the podcast and the first book of yours I read um, back in 2002 was The the Millionaires. And uh, A, I, was, I had just been started day trading and was starting a hedge fund. So I was really fascinated by the the topic. And I remember thinking, oh, this guy's like the John Grisham of private equity. And I, for some reason, I even thought you were working in a private equity firm. Right. And everyone who in law school, the Washington Post said I was a Supreme Court clerk, huh. right? Because whatever I do, I just throw myself into until I can learn it and master it. And then I can write it. I can only write about what I really feel like I know. I can't just make it up. So, so like, you were telling me the story and I wanted you to tell it like it's such a fascinating story. Oh, yeah, the story. opening story. The, the story scene. of how the, uh, the, 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 the concept of the millionaires. Yeah, so what happened was I remember going to a buddy's, um, he was a financial guy working downtown, a buddy from high school. And he told me this story, this is a true story, is that on a Friday, I said, tell, I always say one, I have one question, everyone. I always, you know, it's kind of like, tell me the craziest day of your job because that's where all the danger happens. And all he the said, danger. Yeah, everything. That's why I'm a thriller writer, right? That's what I'm looking for is that moment where real life just becomes into something beyond. Um, and he said to me, it was a Friday afternoon and it was almost four o'clock and the phone rings and it was, you know, one of the top wealthy people, someone that everybody knows had called is a client of their firm screaming like a maniac because uh, the Forbes 400 list of the top 400 and richest individuals in America, or whatever in the world um, was closing that day. And you have to, I guess, put paperwork in there to show, show how much money you have. And they didn't transfer the money into a certain account. And the guy was pissed. And he curls up cursing and he's like, where's my mother effing money? You were supposed to transfer it. You better transfer it right now. Just, just like, curious, that it's that important to be on the Forbes 400 list? To like this what? jackass, yes. So there was like right. an ego thing? Or yeah, is oh, there... listen, that's what the Forbes 400 is, right? It's like whip it out and who's got the biggest one? That's but what it is. Maybe he uses that to get loans from- Whatever it might be, <laughs> right? I mean, but just, you know, there are some people who I'm sure don't care and don't, you know, but you know that there are people who absolutely care and who fight right. to get on there, right? Like anything else. And this guy was just, just so mad. Just money doesn't buy you happiness. Of course, <laughs> nothing buys you happiness, right? I mean, the at the end of the day, he's screaming, get my money in that account. So my friend tries to call his boss. It was the early time of cell phones, can't reach him in the Hamptons. So he starts scrambling around, gets the money, transfers the money, sends it to the guy. The guy's finally happy, hangs up the phone. And then a buddy says to my friend, are you sure that was the real guy? And my friend's like, I almost crapped my pants. 
And he told me that story crime. and I was like, that's the perfect crime. Yeah. And so the opening scene of The Million, I just spoiled, that's chapter one of The Millionaires. Um, and it's Oliver who works in a private bank, which deals with, you know, the, I, at that point I didn't know what a private bank was, but the, you know, the, let's just say Bill Gates doesn't shop at the same bank we shop at, right? He doesn't go to the ATM like everyone else. He has, you know, there's people who have private chefs who come to them at their bank and private jets if you have a big enough account and all these things that make banking with this place a better place to, to you know, set your money. And that's the opening scene of the book. And I didn't make it up. It was real, and, and that's what I love. So, so, so let's talk about that, and 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 this relates all the way to your to your latest book, The Escape Artist. But, um, just in terms of process, so there's there's okay, there's the, this dangerous aspect, like some concept that evokes danger and also evokes a little aspiration, like what if I can transfer that money to my own account or whatever? What if I can, you know, there's this there's this weird aspirational thing, like what if. Uh, you suddenly find all this money. See, I love seeing you. So your brain works like a, I can see it, it works like a cryptographer. You like to break it down. You like to break down into systems. I can see your systems. You have boxes that you think. Like I see it exactly what you're seeing and I just see it as a Supreme Court definition of pornography, which is a good story is something that I know it when I see it. But I will say you. it does seem you do have process in terms of like, okay, I know when I use this type of first sentence and this type of first chapter uh, and this type of last sentence in a chapter People are going to turn the page. People are going to keep reading. Right, but I don't when, look at it right. But I don't look at it like I look at it as, you know, I did um, with Simon Sinek many years ago. He helped me find. We, did, you know, he talks about you know Simon. You know, yeah. Simon's talk. So Simon's a dear friend, and his whole talk is that you have your life is a bullseye, right? And the outside of the bullseye is what you do. And I know what I do. I'm a writer. You know what you do. Um, and everyone knows that part. And the and the other circle is how you do what you do. And some people know their hows. You know, if you're a plumber, you know to connect this pipe to another pipe and, you know, but when you're a writer, the hows are a little trickier because they're kind of like, they're your gut. Your gut tells you what to do. You, you know, your how is a little bit different. You just have to trust your gut sometimes. But the most important thing is why, this inner circle is why you do what you do. And I talked to Simon about my own why, um, but one of the things he identified with me is when it comes to my how is I actually don't know my hows as well as I think I do. But the one how that I have is the struggle matters for me. And that is, I like doing when when I've done something before. I don't like doing it again. Well, it, it, it's uh, well. No, no. Elaborate and so on my that. point. My, well, I was gonna say my point is is like I know you, you're absolutely right. Like there is a certain way to write a good hook sentence. There is a certain way to write a good cliffhanger. But I don't sit there and go, um, you know, the only way to write a thriller is I need a pointy sentence. Like sometimes you need just a good one or a long one, and I just trust my gut that I'm gonna find it. But it's certainly a process. Of course, it has a it has its own ups and downs and things. But I don't, I don't. Um, it's funny. I sometimes see people who break down how to write a bestseller, and the New York. I, don't, I just don't think you can break it down like that. Like the New York Times did this wonderful uh, proof of it a couple of years ago, where they tried to do a piece of art by focus group, and they asked people, um, "What do you like in your art?" And people said, oh, we love animals, so they put a horse. And then they said, and we love historical figures, so they put George Washington on the horse. And they said, they love sunsets, so they put a sunset. And they love great views, so they've had them overlooking this great vista like the Grand Canyon. And by all of the measures of what you know the systems were, this should be the greatest painting of all time. But of course, it was the worst painting. You know, It was the Elvis on Velvet equivalent. Um, but to me, like I can't break it down and say this is what it takes. I just know how to find it when I know how to, you know, I know how to see it. So, so, so that's fine. So, so, but let me let me then break down a couple of things. Yeah, I love hearing it because you actually see those pieces move. I, I don't see them. Well, I'll, let's just. And this is not giving anything away. And the escape artist, 
the very first sentence, and I don't have it right in front of me. And that is one of my favorite first sentences. Yeah, Yeah. she's going to die in 32 seconds. Yeah, these are the last 32 seconds of her life. Yeah, so that's great because... Now you're you're uh, I'm dr- I'm going to read the next I'm going to read the entire chapter. I'm going to read those 32 seconds at least. Alfred Hitchcock said it's not the bang that's scary. It is the anticipation of it. Right. So and the, these are the last 32 seconds of your life fully absolutely right. That is designed to make you go, "Oh crap, I've told you the ending." I told you that exactly what's going to happen from the moment it starts. And and because now we're in her mind, we kind of feel for her like it's told oh, from her point of view that of first course, chapter you you know you're in the you're in the you're in the body of a dead woman yeah you are looking through the best thing a novel can do is it lets you look through the eyes of someone else and then you end of course she's going to die we all know that it's not giving anything away but she does something which is like oh now i got to read the next chapter yes that is so, that i will say that is the that is the goal absolutely you yes. want to end and you, you do this throughout the book you end every on chapter cliffhangers. Yep. and you know what you know who else does that we've had Ken Follett on the podcast he does it Anne Rice who's not been on the podcast you just read her stuff every chapter ends with a cliffhanger I think literary classic literary fiction which I will say there's a distinction between literary fiction and thriller fiction Classic literary doesn't always end on of course. cliffhanger. It might end in a moving way, but it doesn't always end of course. on a cliffhanger. Right. It's, it's des- mine is designed to go fast. Right? Do you I think mean, that was the separation between your first book that was rejected a lot and The 10th Justice, which was your first published book? Yeah, I think, yeah. My first one was definitely more literary, but um, the truth was is I realized my own weakness. I think the way you only get better is, you, is, I don't think it's about, I always think to get better, you have to look at yourself first. Not blame everyone else, not look at the other thing, not try and chase someone else, but you have to look at what you're doing wrong. And the one thing I realized about myself, and I didn't realize until I was done with the second book. I didn't realize until I was done with the 10th Justice. I didn't know, I, you know, I thought the first one was going to sell. I didn't know if the second one was going to sell. But what I learned when it did sell is that um, what law school did give me, even though I went out of fear, I went to avoid my dad's life, is it gave me a world to write about. It gave me something to write about. It gave me the law. It gave me you know, politics and it gave me the Supreme Court and it gave me the White House. And I remember the first day of Columbia Law School, when I was there, the dean of the law school said, I'll never forget it because I actually stole it and you'll see them. I think it's it's in the 10th justice. It's in that first chapter. And he says, um, look at every single newspaper story, open the newspaper and every single story that is on the front page, there's a lawyer involved mm. somewhere. There's a lawyer in that story somewhere. So you have access to do anything. And that was a really potent thing to say to me at 22 years old. And what the law gave me was a universe to write about. And, and I realized about myself, my weakness was, is I wasn't, I needed a plot. To me, it's like, a, it's like an old fashioned, uh, when used to, my grandmother used to in Brooklyn, hang our clothes on an old, um, you know, just on the strings and she used to like roll it out and you put the little clips on them. And then, you know, what are, the, what are those stupid things called? The um, clothesline. Clothesline, thank you. I couldn't think of the word uh, for the writer. There you go, the clothesline. You used to put things on the clothesline and you clip your clothes there and you roll them out there. And I feel like for me, writing, I need the clothesline. I need the plot. The plot is what holds the characters and I clip the character to the plot and then I make the, the, the plot do what it does. But I need the plot. And that's my weakness. I need to have that. And that's why thrillers were really great for me because it gave me something that I was actually like, I, I veered more towards. So, so a difference between that first one and then the next 10 New York Times right. bestsellers that you wrote. <laughs> was a plot. Was, was that you sat down in advance and and said, okay, Supreme Court, 26-year-old clerk, so bad, what bad things could happen? And you start listing them out or thinking about them. No, and a plot yeah. Comes I, you out know what? That. I just found, I, I wish I, even, even 20 years later now, 
I don't do it like that. I don't I ever think what sells. If I was a smart person three years ago, when I started this book, The Escape Artist, I should have written another White House thriller. They work for me. I've done them a million times, right? I know what to do. I know where the secret tunnels below the White House are. I know how to get around it. I know the whole place inside out. And I should just do, continue doing which, what I'm good way, at. Which, by the way, is... Uh... One part of your process, which you know is the extensive research you of do. Of course, I, I know you, that. If, I'm sure you think to yourself, if I out-research the, guy, the other 50 guys writing White House thrillers, my book's going to sell more. I all do. all the plots are roughly similar. Of course, similar. right, right. We're all similar, and the question is who does it the best. Um, but for me, the one thing I looked at, and, and, and I think this is a pretty, you know, it's funny you asked me this question right now. This is my 20th year uh, celebrating as a writer, but I did have kind of my own, I don't want to say it's a midlife crisis, but it was my midlife crisis. Like I just stopped and went, you know, my the kids' books were getting crazy good reviews. Um, I was like, where can I as a thriller writer get those reviews I had at the beginning of my career and be better? Because where was in 20 years, instead of just doing the same thing over and over, where was I my best? Where did I peak in there? Because if I think I'm just the greatest all the time, I'm finished, I'm done. But where was I my best? And I went back and I identified the three books of mine, four books of mine, Millionaires is one of them actually, where I thought, this is my best. And they all have one thing in common, well-developed characters and a world I cared about. And I basically said, you know what? I don't care that the White House is where I've lived for the past decade. I'm shucking it all aside. I'm doing something brand new. And I found Dover Air Force Base to write about. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? 
answer to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely gonna use him from now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy, James. I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims dot com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hims.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hims.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. I think, um, and this gets back into your, your process a little bit, but I think like the plot is really there for the publishers and the audience to say, oh, okay, it's a thriller inside the White House. What really makes it good is now that it's a thriller inside the White House. So there's there's some high stakes thing happening, like the White House or a war or 
the Supreme Court. There's some high stakes environment we're in. It's like John Grisham, this huge law firm or these billion dollar cases or whatever, or Ken Follett, you know, terrorism and these, right. these high, high stakes things that ha are happening. But ultimately, I would say in, in your process, it seems to me when I'm reading these things, every character pretty early on, I'm going to figure out some basic thing. Every one of your characters, I'm going to figure out pretty early on what basic thing motivates them. That's the answer. Mm -hmm. The answer is never the plot. What my best books have in common, and it took me a while to even figure it out myself, is it, you said it just right. It's not the White House. It's not the millionaires. It's not the big bank. It's that you care about that character. So even if you have like some sort of rough notion of the plot, once you introduce, let's call it Zig in, in right. The Escape Artist, you, it seems to me you think to yourself, whether you thought it out in the outline or whether you're thinking it on the fly then, you're, you're thinking it, what, what big thing motivates this character and, what, and, and many of his actions? Here's the number one question. The number one question I ask myself with every character is what does this character want? That's what I think about my friends. I think about my relationships. What do they want? And if I can't answer that question, I shouldn't be writing the character. I got to go back. If you just make the character, you know, oh, he just wants to save the girl. Like, why? No, no, that's, that's, a, that's a plot. What does he want as a person? And if you answer that question correctly, then you will get motivation. Then you will get a character you care well, about. Zig well, cares. Zig lost his daughter, right? He, and, and he finds a girl in Nola who is suddenly back in his life, right? He's a mortician and they, and I got it straight from exactly how it happens. They told me when I got to, you know, uh, just to give a little context. So a few years ago, I was doing a USO tour and entertaining our troops in the Middle East. And I found out about Dover Air Force Base. I knew of course, Dover is the place where, we, where fallen troops go and we take people who die in wars. I didn't know that Dover also gets the biggest cases. They get the space shuttle goes down, 9-11 happens, the Pentagon victims, they all go to Dover. It's also where every secret spy that we have across the globe that no one's supposed to know about when they die, they go to Dover too. So it means Dover is a place full of secrets. And I just heard that and I was like, I got to get in there. But when I get there- Because again, that creates this high stakes Right, I get this high stakes environment, but it's not, it's not the high stakes. Actually, like it's, it's really not high stakes, right? Because at that point, they're all dead. It's done, the stakes are over. I just was blown away that that happens and nobody knows about it. You're telling me that there are morticians in Delaware of all places that know the secret identities of every spy that we have and no one else does? I would say the secrets themselves are high stakes. Of course, and I love that. I, but to me, I just love the world. Yeah. So I went there and I was like, I wanna meet these people, let me tell me. And they told me, um, you know, I, we were there in that, I remember one of the first visits, um, I met people, they introduced me to people outside of Dover, people who used to do it as a job too. And I always give them the plot. I just give them my plot. I say, here's my plot and help me make it better. And I said to them- well, um, were they? Oh, what do you do? You just call up and say, hey, I'm Brad Meltzer. And I, in that case, yeah, I call public affairs. I mean, at, you know, the nice part now is I kind of have a reputation. In the beginning, I used to, yeah, you just cold call. You know, if someone calls you tomorrow and said, James, I'm writing a novel. I just want to see what it's like to be you because um, I love your work. Can you give me like 20 minutes talking? I think I would ignore it. You would? You would ignore it? <laughs> um, uh, you know, so many people call me actually. Oh, wait, you have, yeah, but so, you're different now. That's a different thing. But like the, the average person on an average job, right? Yeah. Not the super, like, again, you can't call the president and say, give me 20 minutes of your time, but like, or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, like, but I'm thinking the average person on an average call job, you did, you did. <laughs> Sorry, But you ahead. had Steve, so that was a different yeah, thing. Exactly. But I will say that when you, the average person in the average job will say yes. 
And especially, and, and so they let me in, and they had seen my research. They know that I know what you know. Hopefully, know what I'm doing, and I and I write about things I love. I don't write about things to rip them apart. I actually like try to examine them and make them look good. And so when I, we were walking around, I said to them, um, "Could you hide a secret note on someone's body?" Because what they said to me, I'll never forget. As they said, when a body comes in, if the person's from your hometown or they have your same last name, or they have your same first name. You know, someone comes in and they're, you know, named James, you, you kind of have this weird affinity for them. You feel like a, a need to like, maybe grab that case. Very human thing, right? Just like if you found someone named Meltzer, or you found someone named Brad, or they have your birthday. Actually, I think I think there's some study even on marriages, that many marriages that man that last, the man and woman have similar names. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Oh, that's, a, I like that. Um, but the point is, it's a very human thing, right? You just want to take a little extra care. And I just loved the idea of that. And so I thought, um, what if you had a mortician who, as a body came through, was someone he knew? So I had this, that's, it just made sense to me. It was very human. Everyone understands that. And then I said to him, could you hide a secret note on the body? Like, could he find something on the body that suddenly makes him even care even more? That, oh my gosh, I know this person and look what I found on their body. And I didn't make this up. The, more, the people that, that I met there, eventually one of them told me this story is that if you want to hide a note, um, if you're on a plane and the plane is going down, if you ate a note and it made it to your stomach, that the liquids in your stomach could potentially protect the note from a plane crash. Mm. And I was like, cool story. He's like, no, no, it's not a story. They said, it actually happened in 9-11. I said, what are you talking about? And he said, he called, I'll never forget, the ultimate message in a bottle, they called it. And explained to me that on 9-11, the Pentagon victims came to Dover Air Force Base and Flight 77, one of the victims from the Pentagon flight, when they opened up the body, had a secret note in their stomach. And I was like, what? And they told me, I said, what's the note say? And I, and I thought, you know, you know, it had to be, you know, they wouldn't tell me. And I, of course, respect that privacy. But I was like, you're, te- you know, I, I feel like it had to be someone in the military because who else would have the wherewithal that in that moment of chaos to be like, I got a plan. I'm going to eat this piece of paper and hopefully it will, you know, I'll become a message in a bottle myself. And as I think about it now, to me, I feel like that note was doing what we all want. What we all seek is connection, right? We all love and we want to be loved. And I can tell you when my parents died, that the one kind of moment of solace that I took was that I got to say goodbye to them. Mm -hmm. I knew it was coming. And I feel like what, the reason I take hope from that note is that it proves that when you reach out in the universe, when you send that message in the bottle, it's a beautiful idea and a hope we have that we're going to be heard. And I love that story. It, I couldn't shake it. I, I promise you that anyone listening now, when, when you hit some turbulence on the next plane, you may not think of me, but you're going to think of that story. You're going to think about what's on your note. And I couldn't shake it. And I knew my plot was in there just because I couldn't shake it. I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I thought to myself, there's the plot. And the opening scene of the book is literally that. It's a plane going down and a woman's going down and, and she eats this note. And Nola Brown is the woman. The plane goes down. And sure enough, her body goes to Dover Air Force Base. Mortician finds it, opens up, finds the note. And the note says, Nola, you were right. Keep running. And he realizes that this woman who he thinks he knows, it's just not Nola at all. He checks the fingerprints. This is not who they say it is. The government's lying. This is a different person. And Nola's not dead. She's on the run. She's the escape artist. And now there's my plot. And that's what I got. And I knew it. I was like, I got at, at it. At that point, did you know yet what she's escaping from? Did so, you- right. So I didn't start the book. Usually the old version of me would have just started. Mm-hmm. I will make the boat as I'm floating the boat. 
right? As I'm driving it, I can repair it. And I just said, don't do that. Don't do it. Don't figure it out as you go. And instead, I stopped myself. It took an extra year, this book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, don't start it until you have Nola. Figure out what she wants. I was like, why? Why is she on the run? Don't start it. It'll be better. Trust me. I tr- told myself. And I did. It took an extra year to do it. But I knew, and I, and again, it came reality. So I was, we a couple of years ago did a TV show called Lost History um, on H2, the sister uh, channel. And we were searching for the 9-11 flag that the firefighters raised at ground zero. We were lucky enough to find the flag. But while we were filming the episode we were looking for, what I couldn't tell anyone is I was in this army museum in outside Virginia. And they were walking me around and they had paintings by Adolf Hitler. They had paintings by these big military people. And I was like, why does the government and the army have all this art? And they said to me, and I never knew this was true, but since World War I, the US Army has had an actual painter on staff who does nothing more than paints disasters as they happen. So whether it's storming the beaches of Normandy, whether it's Vietnam, whether it's 9-11, there's a painter there who's just painting. And they said, while everyone's running into a disaster with guns, there's one person who's running into that same disaster with nothing but paintbrushes in their pockets. And I was like, that's the craziest person I've ever met. I want to meet him. I want to meet him. And they said to me, you mean her. You want to meet her. And that's where Adola was born. And what was she like? The The real artist in residence was actually like a really lovely, amazing, well-adjusted, terrific person. Nothing like my character. But I knew as I thought about that character, if you're racing into disasters, I mean, just think about it. Anyone who races in disasters is running from their own disaster. It just had, I just felt that for Nola. Well, I felt what, it. What was this uh, woman, the, the real woman, what was she running from? In, you know, in- I don't know. Cause I, you know, I tried to figure it out. I spent time with her. She was, she was, you know, as army people are, they're just very protective. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but the one thing I did see in her that, that is in the real Nola, I couldn't figure it out, but she definitely had a teacher that changed her life. That's where I got it from. She had her whole course, you know, she used to color as hard as she could with that purple crayon. And her teacher once said, you know, she's coloring too hard. She's wearing down the crayons. And that little detail stuck with me, right? The girl that colors too hard. You know, it, it seems like with the motivations, because you you only have the reader for the time it takes to read the novel, you, you can't really build up the motivations too much. You sort of almost have to hit them over the head with it a little bit. And uh, I wonder if you give yourself license to say, okay, I'm going to have this person motivated, but it's going to be an, ex- an not an exaggerated motivation, but I'm going to give this guy a big motivation. So with each character. So like, for instance, with Zig, the mortician, um, something serious happened to his daughter and uh, more serious than the average person would have to deal with. Sure. And so you and like with Nola, her motivations from childhood are are big. Again, bigger than the average yep. person. So I wonder if if that is part of your process that you allow yourself yeah. to say, okay, I'm going to give them big motivations also, so that their characters. Yeah, I mean, listen, I'm giving no one person usually in real life is just one thing, mm-hmm. right? We're not motivated by one thing. We're not Batman, right? Batman's like my parents are gunned down in front of me. I will give my life to the end of it. Spider Man says, you know, Uncle Ben died, and I will forever, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. I mean. You know, Superman, the Kens taught me well in Kansas. I mean, we tend to do that in comic books, very comic book way. Um, I think in books like this, and in most books, right, we tend to have that driving force, right? Harry Potter has his parents, and, you know, even, you know, what drives Atticus Finch or Scout, right, is like, you know, justice. It's like this soul sword. Um, and all of us are, I hope, a little more complex than that. 
But some of us do have a drive for one thing or that thing we want. And I think we reduce characters, but I think you do. You get big revelations. But even the smaller characters, in this book, I tried to give them something they really care about, right? Like something that just makes them go. Like even Wags, who's a tiny character, can't appear on more than 10 pages in the book. Um, and I said that her character, everyone else um, loved mazes when they were little. And her, she had all these brothers and sisters that used to pick on her. Um, and they all loved doing mazes, but what she loved was connected dots. You put one dot to the other dot and you slowly get the bigger picture. And she was an investigator. And everyone gets that character like that. Boom. There she is. There's Wags. Mm. And you just know that person, you know? And it's 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 not a big motivation, but you get her. And I feel like the one thing you have to do when you write a novel for a reader, it's not about big motivation, small motivation, but it has to be something that the reader can hook onto. Something that makes the reader feel like that little part of that short of them is in that character. Well, also, I like... Um... I like also how when you're doing this research, you're not just sort of trying to find a list of facts that nobody else knows. Right, then you can throw that's, them in. Not a, that's not right. You're totally right. It, but it seems like what you're trying to do is find actual fascinating stories inside these things that you're researching that you're passionate about because then you know the reader will be I, I, passionate This is about my, them. my secret for writing a novel is simply this. And I believe that the X factor on the page is, is the writer enjoying themselves. Hmm. That's it. You know when you read a book and you sit down, you read chapter one, and you go, my God, this is a train leaving the station. I got to get on it. It's, it's because the writer is so excited. That's what you're feeling. It's not, a, it's not stringing together adjectives and nouns with the right amount of adverbs and short sentences and big ones. It's that you're feeling excitement, right? That's the X factor on the page. And, and to me, it's why, you know, when people always say, oh, I like that first book that that person wrote. You know why? Because they didn't know what the hell they were doing. They were just excited to try this experiment and they never got a bad review in their life. So they're not afraid of anything because they're too stupid to be afraid. So everything they feel in the world is on that page and they're just telling you that story because they're so excited to tell it. And that's what you're feeling. And as they get older and they write more books, they get scared. They got bad reviews. They start worrying about what they're writing. They start worrying, you know, they start thinking it, overthinking it. It's not natural anymore. So the excitement dies down and that's why everyone's later books slow down. And I just finally took a hard look at myself the past three years and was like, I gotta, I'm not scared of anything now. I did it. So why, you know, I'll tell you this, James. Every day when I sit down to write, this is my secret. Um, everyone has their kind of little things that they do, whether it's a mantra, whether it's, you know, whatever their thing is. Mine is this. I remember the day when I got my 23rd and 24th rejection letter. And the day actually happened because my editor told me, stay home. It was a, no cell phones then. She said, I, the 23rd and 24th person who was looking at the book, they love it. I actually met with them. I had meetings with them. And she said, I think they're gonna both make offers. And I want you to stay by your phone at whatever time it was. And I'm gonna call you and tell you what their offers are. And I was so excited because she was gonna, I was in debt in law school and, and college debt that I was, she was gonna tell me how rich I was gonna be. And I remember standing by the phone, waiting for her to tell me how rich I'm gonna be. How is, what number is she gonna pull out to tell me how great my life is about to change? Because someone's bidding on my first book. And I'll never forget, I picked up the phone and I said, hello. And she said, sorry, kiddo. And my heart broke. And every day for over 20 years now that I sit down to write, before I will touch the keyboard, before I will do a single lick of work, I sit down in my seat and I literally picture that room I was in. I picture the phone I was holding, one of those clear ones where you used to be able to see the insides. Um, I picture the desk that was there, the bed that was on my right, the 
terrace that was out in front of me, the parking lot that led, the fire station with the three doors that I looked at across the street, and I say those words to myself, sorry, kiddo. I recreate it perfectly in my head. I want to relive that moment. I've relived it for 20-something years because every day I sit down, if I think I'm done and I've made it, I'm finished. I want to be as hungry as I was when I was 24 years old every day because that's how I'll be better. And if I think otherwise, I'm again, I'm finished. And so to me, when I did this book, I was like, rip it all up, tear it all down, go back and don't start until you are just so passionate about every character you can't wait to tell everyone about them. And you're right. I take those details that I love and I sprinkle them down because I love them. Right, The opening, opening page of the book says, in 1898, a man named John Elbert Wilkie was a magician. He was a friend of Harry Houdini. He was in charge of the Secret Service. He loved doing magic tricks himself. It is the only time in history that a magician was in control of the Secret Service. And I was like, I love that detail. I'm going to use that. I'm going to figure out how to use it. How do we use it? I'm going to get it in that book. That's page one of The Escape Artist, and I'm going to go. And all you're feeling is my excitement. And I hope, I hope you'll tell me that's what really drives the book. And, yeah, well, well, then there's, you know, you overlay this whole aspect of Houdini on top of the, the and- Right, you know, but you said it right, arts. but you can't just throw facts, right? Like right. it took me forever. It took me that extra year to figure out why. How am I using Houdini in this? And it finally, I, I finally well, well, cracked it. So, so with why, are you thinking plot? Like- No, what, theme. Theme. Theme so, has to be the bigger. I mean, the plot obviously has to fit, but it- it, it's plot and uh, I want to be honest. Like it's it's part plot and it's part theme. I think it's a little bit of both. You, again, it's you know when you see it. So I so this is where it came to me. I, I didn't know how to use it. I, I wanted to use that Houdini thing for you know how many books now, but I just couldn't. Find, it just didn't fit. It just didn't. I, it was like a square. I piece would think in the White House it would fit. Right, like you think like all these things, list. right? But it just it just didn't fit. And then here's what happened. Um, I found out that Harry Houdini had his own secret service. He had these people that he just would go into a town early. And they were the ones who would figure out um, what kind of handcuffs the cops would use and what kind of locks were on their jail cells so Houdini could beat them. That's how he did all the tricks is the Secret Service, his little group mm. went in early. Mm. Genius, right? It's genius. I didn't know that. And, and one of the things I found out is Harry Houdini was obsessed with, of all things, death. And his, we all know his shows were you know, escaping the great thing, doing the magic trick. But the other half of his show, the other part of his show, I should say, was always um, disproving... Uh, spiritualists, basically people who were doing seances. Because it was after World War I, all these sons of Americans were killed. And I know it sounds silly now by our science today, but uh, there, was, it, there was just a massive amount of people who said they could speak to the dead. And they would just kind of take people's money saying that they, I could see your son and he came back and he's giving you these messages and Houdini hated it. So he suspended a part of his show actually was not just escaping the death trap, but was exposing these guys. And he was so obsessed with it, though, that he gave secret code words to all of his nearest and dearest, his family and friends, that if they did come back from the dead, they would have a code word that only the two of them would know. I knew that he did that with his wife. I didn't know that he did that with the other people. And he did that with other people, right. So he did it with his mother, too. His mother was the death he never got over. That was the one. Mm. And the word that he gave for his mother, supposedly gave to his mother, and you know that way he knew when the seance came. If I said, "Hey James, your word is going to be you know bingo," if you came back and said bingo, I'm like, "Oh my God, it's really him." But the word he gave to his mother, to the one woman we never got over the death of, was a single word. Her code word was forgive, mm. forgive, right? And I finally, in that moment, I was like, I got it. It was like doing the puzzle, right? It's like doing the connect the dots for me. Is I realized that here was Zig who lost his daughter. 
And here was Nola, who had her childhood torn apart in a wood chipper. And here was Houdini, who couldn't ever get over the death of his mother. And I think all of us, and again, it has to be something that a reader can relate to. All of us have a disaster in our life. And it could be abuse, or it could be uh, addiction for so many people. It could be just the loss of a loved one. We all have craters that we've been in our lives. And the question is, how do you climb out of your crater? How do you return to life? That's what it is, right? We're all trying every day when we have a disaster that we're in, how do we return to life? That's the way the escape artist is really trying to do. And I realized that's what it is. You have to forgive and you have to always start forgiving with yourself. And now I had, here's what Zig and Nola and even Harry Houdini had in common and all of us have in common. And how do you take that and turn it into a plot? I don't know. That's the secret. I just, my brain knows how to, I don't know. I just do it. I mean, I literally, I just figure out how to get there. I know, I don't figure out, I'm not smart enough to figure out the theme at the start. I did not know any of that from the start. Mm. What I do is I write the book and the plot. And when I get to the end, and I've done this, I do this all the time. I get to the end and then I see what the main idea is. You know, like when you had to take the SAT and you had to figure out the main idea, figure out the theme. I can figure out the theme of my own stuff. Do you then, and does then that then I, compel a rewrite? Or? And then I go back to the beginning and I rebuild it, right? Make sure you can see it loud and clear. And when I got to the end of this book, I realized I was like, oh my God, this is, of course, this is exactly where I am in my life. I need to forgive. I need to come back to life. My favorite line in the whole book, it says, just because you're not dead doesn't mean you're alive. And that is the core of the escape artist. Just and, because you're not dead doesn't mean you're alive. And I was like, I need that. Why do you need that? Um, because I feel like, I, I felt, and as I said before, I feel like 20 years in now, I just was kind of panicking. Like, you know, what else am I going to do? Is it, do I just do this again? You know, we were talking before about what Simon said about my how. You know, that that the struggle matters. I need to feel like it's impossible. You tell me I can't do it. That is what I will head for immediately. They told me you can't do comic books. You're a novelist. I was like, watch this. I wrote the Justice League. They said, you can't write kids' books. I was like, watch this. You're going to do your own TV show? I was like, novelists don't do TV shows. I was like, watch this. Like the moment you say you can't do it, I am in. But the moment I've done it and I, I, don't, I'm, I get, you know, I want, to do, I want to do the other hard thing. I don't know why. It's just the way I'm built. But I you, just get, you always get back to, it seems like your core, you always get back to the novel writing. Yeah, I do. And I, I know it because the novel writing is still the house I built with my own hands, right? I still got to look at that. I mean, I can do I Am Abraham Lincoln. I can do Superman. I love those things. Right, so so, so, so your kid books. Right, I can and, do the kids books. And, I can do the TV show. But to me, those are all telling someone else's story. Hmm. When I get to the novels, I'm looking at a blank page and I got to write chapter one and there's nothing to fill it. So I just want to ask naive questions. Like, do you have like, kind of the high plot, plot points outlined before you start the book? The only thing I know when I start a book is I know who done it. I know who the bad guy is. Um, and I know do, the, do, I know are the you beginning. the arc of the hero? Like, yeah, gotta... I know the arc of the hero. Like, and I know, I know what Zig was going to do. I know what Nola was going to do just in general, mm-hmm. like what was going to drive them. But I only knew for 50 to 100 pages. Mm-hmm. So what I do is I tend to outline for about 50 to 100 pages in my head. And you don't know how it's going to end. And I know, th- I know who the bad guy is, but I have no idea how it's going to end. I know who the bad person is, but I don't know where, when, how. To me, it's like driving in a car, and um, it's like it's like uh, if I want to go somewhere, I, I I need the address. I don't need directions, but just give me the address. If you don't give me anything, I'm just going to drive in circles. I have no point of destination. If you give me the address, I may weave this way and weave that way and go to the far right and go to the far left, but I know the direction I'm heading. It's to that address. So the bad guy's the address, and and to me, the fun of it is, I once did a book 
where I outlined the entire book start to finish. I was like, screw it. I'm going to do the whole thing. Here's 400 pages, giant outline, big whole thing. And I did it and I'm proud of the book, but it was the worst process for me because it was no fun. It was just connect the dots. There was nothing new was happening. I just was, I figured it out and then I just followed the line. And who wants to do that? Well, I think I think the great thing about the research, once you have kind of like this rough idea of what fascinates you and what a possible plot could be, when you do the research, what's great is you're 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 a you're learning all these fascinating stories that are going to fill up the 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 book that no, nobody knows. But then you're giving people real dialogue. So so when you tell a story that uh, that these morticians tell each other, and you know it's a real story coming out of the voices of of real morticians, that dialogue is going to feel re- real oh, to the and, reader. And, well, I think I, I think you, you hit it on the head. We are right now with our phones in our pockets. We walk around with the Library of Alexandria in our pockets every day. But the hardest thing to find today is the truth, right? Go put the word Freemason in Google. Watch how many pages it takes you to find something that's factual. And I think we, we are, as you know, we're starving for the truth. I don't care what anyone says. Truth does exist. There is an objective truth. Not in every sense, but like it is, there are some things that are true. And to me, I love the fact, I think as a culture, we have, because we have so much access to information, we have the best BS meters of any culture in history. You're reading a fictional book. You're reading something like The Escape Artist, but you know, or The Millionaires, you know that something about that feels real. You, you know it. You don't even know why, but you're like that. When, I, when you hear that story about finding a note in someone's body because it survived in a plane crash in the belly, even though I totally can make that up, I mean, I never could because it's such a, but something about it seems, it just seems so real. And we know those details that are real. And I love that when I'm reading a book, I love when I'm turning the pages really fast, but I love when I'm learning something. Well, also, it it, it also is related to the fact that uh, the truth is stranger than Fiction. Always. So, so the fact that this is a real truth actually makes it a, such a compelling detail in a piece of fiction. Sure. And and what is your maybe your your job that's pretty boring, uh, you know, on a daily basis? I take the most exciting day and give it to you. Right. That's what I did with the millionaires. I just took his most exciting day, and that became the story. The same thing with Dover. Like the people at Dover right now, they're like, oh my gosh, like if this ever happened here, but like, yeah, I took the most exciting day that could happen. That's not every day. Every day is pretty normal like the rest of our days. But I picked the most exciting day that could ever happen at a place and then I pull the whole thing apart until I can show you the DNA of the place. And then um, uh, like you like you were mentioning before, you went from uh, these, these best-selling novels that you're writing to comic books. Were, were you a fan of comic books as a kid? Yeah, I was, totally I was oh my gosh. Yeah, no, no. I mean, my, listen, I love doing my thrillers, but when I get to write Batman and I write B-A-T-M-A-N and I get to put words in Batman's mouth, I'm wearing my underwear on the outside of my pants that day, right? Like that's <laughs> the you, best day. How did you like get that? Like, how did you pitch that? Yeah, I didn't pitch it. Um, I'm just a comic nerd. I've been reading com- my first books and every, I still to this day, if you look at my backpack right now, is I carry comics with me. I love comics. And, um, you know, for me- the most important part of the story is not Superman. The most important part of the story is Clark Kent. You want to know why? Because we're all Clark Kent. We all know what it's like to be boring and ordinary and wish we could do something incredibly beyond ourselves. And I love those heroes for that. I owe those heroes. At a time in my life where I had my chaos, those heroes taught me right and wrong. Those heroes were my center. They were my constant. And, uh, or at least my, my, you know, kind of justice barometer. And 
for me, I always, since my very first book, since the 10th Justice, I've hidden comic book references in the books for those who are nerdy enough to find them. Mm-hmm. They're just hidden in there. I, I hid a treasure in one of the books that took people five years to find, but someone found it. People find stuff. And I love hiding things in the books. Um, and in The Millionaires, when The Millionaires came out, the main character of the book is named Oliver, who was named after Oliver Queen. And any nerd knows who Oliver Queen is, Green Arrow. And at the first signing in New York, the editor of Green Arrow, a guy named Bob Shrek, approached me. He was the last person in line. And he said, um, Brad, the director, Kevin Smith, was writing Green Arrow at the time. There was now comics are cool. Back then, nobody, nobody, you know, if you, no one wrote comics unless you were a comic writer. And Kevin Smith was the first one. And it was their number one selling comic book, DC Comics' number one selling comic book. And they said, if he's leaving the book, no one knows, but if we take him and we replace him with a comic writer, all the comic people are gonna be like, Where, you know, where's Kevin Smith? We want the director back. But no one knows you in comics. You're a novelist. If we take our number one selling superhero book and give it to a novelist, everyone's gonna stop and go, what the hell does this novelist know and DC Comics know that I don't know? So they said, you'll either succeed on a fig- big stage or you're gonna fail on a big stage but you're going to have our number one book, superhero book. You want to take a shot? I'm like, I'll take those odds any day. And so I signed up to do Green Arrow. um, And then I got to do Identity Crisis and Justice League. They gave me the Justice League of America, which is my dream come true. Um, That's a big get. It's a big get. And you get to pick your own Justice League, which is like, I I looked up and he said, are you going to do it? I said, I've been waiting my whole life for someone to ask me that question. Don't screw with me. And then I'm just doing next month uh, an will come out Action Comics number 1000. I'm doing the uh, anniversary for Superman because I love doing Superman. And so- Did you ever think you would be part of that history? No, no. that was like, that's the, that's like the nerd dream, right? Like I have my buddy in college, we used to literally sit around and just write, you know, Justice League of America versus the Avengers and who would win and who would fight in every fight. We, I mean, we literally, that's what we would do because we were just that nerdy about it. And now, you know, the fact that someone would pay us to do exactly that, um, you know, it's that. That's it's so someone. funny with with Green Arrow and and with DC Comics in general is that you have these superheroes like Batman, like Green Arrow that don't really have superpowers. They have super skills yeah. they, that they've perfected. Because Green Arrow, he shoots. Well, that's why they're interesting to me, right? Yeah. Why is Batman the best villain? Is I'm the best hero because I'll never be Superman. I will never lift a car over my head. I will never shoot lasers out of my eyes. But Batman is just a guy who's stubborn and won't give up. And man, I could be that. And how did? Tell me how you you felt like the literally the muscle of writing a thriller. Tra- when did it start? When did you feel like you were using it while writing the plot of a, and the story of a comic book? Yeah, you know, um, like you know what I mean. Like you could feel that that exact muscle yeah, in your brain. Yeah, no, going I, off. right. You know, I mean, and even it's funny in my first com in my first novel, the one that got rejected everywhere. There's one part toward the the third quarter of the book where there's a big chase and there's a big kind of cat and mouse thing that happens. It's the best part of the whole book. I knew it then. Like I remember my editor reading that part and was like, this part, it just lights on fire. And it was basically like someone plays a prank on someone else and then tries to get away and they try and track them. And I use all this kind of like clever stuff to track them down. I had no idea at the time that that was, my thriller, it was born right there. That's the best part of the whole damn book. Um, and so for me, uh, here's... Um, in Green Arrow, the very first pages. I mean, it was like page page one of Green Arrow. Is uh, Green Arrow at the time Kevin Smith uh, took him over? He was dead. They had killed Green Arrow, and he came back to life. And Kevin Smith was writing about how he came back, and that was the whole fun of it. And and I just thought this, and it actually it's interesting with the escape artist. Um, 
is, and here's the plot of, of my Green Arrow story, is I, and this is what I pitched to DC Comics, is he comes back to life. Kevin's been telling a story. Kevin Smith's been telling the story for a year of all the things that happened. And I stopped and I just, I take it very seriously. And I was like, that scene opens up and it's Clark Kent standing at Oliver Queen's own grave, the grave that was there when he died. And he says to Clark Kent, who was there? And he says, you know who was there, Al, you don't have to see this. He says, just tell me who was there. And what you realize is that Green Arrow is asking Superman, who was at my funeral? I wanna know who was there. They buried me, I'm back to life. Tell me who was at my funeral. Very human question, right? And they show the pictures and he sees there's Black Canary and there's Robin and there's, you know, Batman doesn't show because Batman hates funerals. And then you see that there's some guy in the corner who they don't know. And Oliver Queen's like, who's that guy? And he's like, just leave it alone, Ollie. And he's like, who is that man that was at my funeral? Why is he there and why don't I know him? And that's page three of the book. And there's the thriller, right? A human question. Who was at your funeral that you don't know? And that was what drove the entire storyline. And you know, this is this is related now. I'm going to segue. Um, you have this great TED Talk, How to Write Your Own Obituary. I'm obsessed with death, right? Uh, and, you know, I think, first, I just want to, I just want to kind of close this part of things. The Escape Artist is great. All your books are great. They're great thrillers. I, again, I sort of feel like you're, it's very John Grisham-like, but you take on so many more, um, and I, enjoy, I actually enjoy John Grisham thrillers. You take on so many different types of uh, environments, whether it's private equity or the military sure. or the White House or whatever. It's, it's such great books to read. Written all these comic books. It's it's you've switched kind of mini careers several times. You wrote the children's books. You've done TV. I actually watched the first few episodes of Jack and Bobby. I'm sorry I didn't watch the whole. So uh, you're the season. reason why we were canceled. I just want to hold <laughs> well, you responsible. I uh, I was enjoying it. I don't yeah. know why I stopped. I think just TV in general was yeah, changing course, around that of time. Course. Um, you know, became more of a binge watching type of type sure. of scenario around the same time. I was binge watching Lost. That I was you know, of course, but. Uh, 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 but it was fascinating that you were able to make that that transition, which is again a, a childhood dream for many people. That and you were able to do it. But uh, what should people do if they want to write their own obituary, and why? Yeah, I mean, listen, um, I got to read my own obituary because a few years ago um, I got to work to help to save the house where Superman was created, and it was in you know disaster, and we helped repair it. And the reporter for the Wall Street Journal said to me you know, Brad, this thing you did with the Superman house, it's going to be in your obituary. And my first thought was like, thanks for so clearly contemplating my death, right? But I was struck by that question. And I hired him to write my obituary. I, w I, I just couldn't shake it. I was like, what are the, what's going to be in there? What are they going to say about me? How much did it cost? Um, he actually didn't, he wound up not charging me. He did okay. it for free. I, I said, I'll pay you for it, but he wound up doing it for free. And I think the reason he didn't charge me is because he eventually sends me my obituary. I was such a narcissist at that moment that I just started reading the obituary. I didn't read the body of the email. And the body of the email said, hey, Brad, I got called on to another story, so I didn't finish your obituary. So as I'm reading through my obituary, um, which talks about how I sold books and blah, 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 and do all this research, my obituary, I'm not joking, ended mid-sentence with these three words. He was a, and I was like, wait, what was I? Was I good? Was I bad? Did I matter? Did I achieve greatness? What was I? And I know anyone listening right now, you're thinking, you know, what are you? And I realized if you want to figure out what's going to be in your obituary, you have to separate 
you first have to figure out who's going to remember you. If you figure out who's going to remember you, you'll figure out how you're going to be remembered. And I go, this is the green arrow. Right, thing. same thing, right? Who's going to remember you? Um, but but I, I, I want to challenge you a moment. You have to also first separate the things you do for yourself from the things you do for other people. Because first is what you do for yourself, right? Your job title, where you went to school, uh, and those will all be in your obituary. But I promise you that when you die, that it's one of the last times your job title will ever be mentioned. Your resume fades with you. Your job title is gone. But those things you do for other people, that's your legacy. Because that's what legacy is, right? It's what endures, it's what lasts, it's your effect on other people. And as I looked at it, I realized there were four types of legacy we all have. And we've talked about them actually throughout this entire episode. And the first one's easy, your family, right? I'm the prime, I'm, I'm my parents' legacy. For anything else my dad messed up, you know, everything, as I said, I said this at the start of the thing, everything I am today, my sense of humor, my confidence, everything I am is because of the love that my parents just lavished on me. My, my mother, you know, could sell books. They, they would go into the bookstore and say, my dad would say, I'm here for Brad Meltzer's new book. He's my favorite author. They're like, Mr. Meltzer, we know he's your son, right? We know. And, and, and it's not that they were good at selling books. They just love me. They, whatever I did, if I started, if I lit a fire, I lit someone on fire, my mother would say, nice flame. She just, whatever it was. So you have your family. And of course you have friends and coworkers. We talked about Miss Spicer, my teacher, right? There's someone, my, my, my English teacher who had no concept of her legacy. You know, woman changed my life, right? Changed my life by telling me I could write, but had no concept of her impact on my life. But I think the interesting part of the third and fourth category is a legacy. And one is the legacy you have on your community. And that can take much longer, right? There's a sign in New York City subway that was up until a couple of years ago. And it used to say, who will remember your name? It's a potent question. Who will remember your name? And I love that. You know, my my uh, wife's father, there was a soul food restaurant in Miami until a couple of years ago called Jumbo's. And Jumbo's, like every other restaurant in Miami, if you were uh, black, wouldn't serve you. But when my father-in-law, Bobby Flam, took over in the 60s, he said, you know what? These are rules for an uncivilized time. We got to change them. He hired three black employees and 30 of his white employees walked out the door. And he said, that's okay. And I love that Jumbos became a civil rights landmark, but I love even more is that when there were race riots in Miami all those years ago and every place was kicked in and thrown on, you know, lit on fire, nobody touched Jumbos, nobody. Because for all those years, Jumbos looked out for the community. And as a result, the community looked out for it. And some of us are lucky enough to be able to affect the community. It could take years to do that. But the most fascinating one is the last one. And James, you have that, right? There are people in your community that you impact in different ways. But the last one is the one you really hit, and it's the impact you have. The fourth category, after family and friends and your coworkers, the third category being you know your community. But the fourth and final category of legacy we all have is the impact you have on complete and utter strangers. And I can tell you that for some of us, it happens when you know you get a an email that says, "Hey, can you donate to my breast cancer walk?" And you're like, "Ah, oh, I need another email like that. Like I need a hole in the head, you're right?" But you give your five bucks, ten bucks, fifty bucks, hundred bucks, thousand bucks, whatever you give, and you're never going to know who those people are. They're never going to know you, but you're forever tied together. Maybe we give canned goods at your church and synagogue, whatever you donate to, whatever it is you do, they'll never know who you are, but you are forever part of each other's legacy. Mm. And that can take forever to do. But those are the things that actually impact. Those are the things that you know amazingly touch everyone. And I think to me, again, perfect way to kind of bring it all together um, is if you really want to know how to have that legacy, go say thank you. 
because I can tell you, I'll, I'll leave you with this one. Um, it's a few years ago, 15 years ago, right after 9-11 happened, I got an, uh, an email that came through from a sailor on a submarine. And he said to me, um, I'm on a submarine. I can't tell you where we are, Brad, but we have one of your books here. And it just brought me real calm at a time when it was a lot of chaos. And I thought that's the nicest thank you. He said, I want to thank you. I thought that's the nicest thank you I've ever heard. That is great. And I said, I got to do something nice for that sailor. So I called my publisher at the time and I said, can I get 10,000 books donated to the USO? And they were like, yeah. And I was like, wow, that was really easy. I called another publisher, not my own. I said, can I get 10,000 books donated to the USO? Yep. Called another and another. Got 40,000 books donated to the USO. Got involved with the USO. Started going on trips to the USO that brought me to the escape artist. Um, and when I'm there in the Middle East, this guy says to me, hey, Brad, I want to thank you for all those books you donated all those years ago. Like a decade later, I said, what are you talking about? He said, he said you know, when I was stationed in Iraq and Afghanistan, I would see stacks of your books. And it always say, courtesy of the USO, and I knew you had to have donated them. So thank you. And I said, no, 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 you're, you're screwing it all up. I'm here to thank you. Don't thank me. I'm here to thank you. And I came home from the trip and I was like, you know what? I got to find that sailor. I got to find that sailor and say thank you to him. That's the thing. I got to say thank you. And I tracked him down. The email bounced back, but I found his phone number. I called him up and I said, listen, I don't know if you remember me, but 10 years ago, you wrote me an email and it got me involved with the USO and got all these books donated. It's really all due to you and your thank you. I just want to thank you for it. And I figured he's going to be inspired, feel all fantastic. And you know, when you're on the phone with someone, you just know that something's wrong. Mm. And he says, I said to him, are you okay? And he says, no. And I said, what's wrong? And he said, you know, I, I didn't think, uh, I don't know how to say this, but he said, my mother died a couple of days ago from breast cancer. Mm. And what he has no idea of is my mother died from breast cancer right before that. And right there, I said to him, I think I'm here to deliver a message to you. And he said, what's the message? And I said, you know, my mom died. Everyone gave me useless advice. Like she's in a better place. And I was like, I don't care about a better place. I want her here. My mother's dead. I want her here. But one person gave me advice that actually helped me at this time. And I think I'm supposed to deliver it to you. He says, what's the advice? And I said, our mothers never leave us, ever. And he starts crying. And because he's crying, I'm getting emotional. I'm not one of those new agey people who feels like, you know, there's rainbows and glitter canyons that, you know, rain down from the sky. But, you know, sometimes we realize we're alone in the universe and sometimes we feel profoundly connected. Go say thank you. You won't believe what comes from it. I went back to Miss Spicer and said, thank you. And when you go say thank you, you become the giant to her. You well, become the giant. I think that is that is great advice. I do want to close with that. I know I know you have to get going to your to your next event, and the Escape Artist is a great book. It's it's a it's a page turner, and I and I, just as someone who loves writing, I loved seeing the process in action yeah. of a of a great thriller writer, and love talking to you and and so many interesting things you've said, and I learned from all of your books. Uh, so Brad, thanks for, for coming on the show. Brad Meltzer, the escape artist. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. In a fast paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, We've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support so you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.